How many of you are morning people? Great, three. Some of you aren't sure, like, is he setting me up or is he leading? No, I'm, it's an honest question. Um, I haven't always been a morning person. Um, that was a transition that, for whatever reason, uh, happened some time ago. I love to get up before the sun comes up, and I think partly because it's quiet uh, outside and inside. There are various reasons for that. Some of you have morning routines that are, that are set, and if even one of those little pieces gets moved out of position, you're wrecked for the whole day. Others of you, like morning routine, I'm not even awake until about noon, and that's kind of when my day starts, so let's not even talk about morning routines. Well, that's certainly not where we're going to go in the Word of God, although uh, I think it is interesting uh, and will tie into some things that we are going to see in Mark's gospel here in just a moment. But I did a little, a little research this week on morning routines and habits, and, and you know, all you have to do is Google something like that, and, and there's just article after article, and uh, everything from Pinterest uh, pops up. Uh, to professional journals and magazines and articles that have been written. And I ran across one article uh, that highlighted some habits of a very successful uh, entrepreneur. And I thought, well, maybe there's something here for me to learn. And here's what he says. My first 80 minutes are very, and that word very is in all caps, are very regimented. Sleep cycle wakes me up between 5.10 and 5.40 every morning, and that's according to my sleep cycle. Then I take an inner bath, which I read that and I thought, what is this? Well, here it is, 18 ounces of water with lemon, Himalayan salt, and trace minerals. I'm thinking, interesting. And then he says, I grab my iPod and hitting a 35-minute power walk around the bay is my next move, making sure to take deep breaths, again, all caps, during the walk to really oxygenate my blood. Upon my return, I make a killer green smoothie with 14 ingredients, mostly veggies, as well as a green matcha tea mixed with ghee, and then do five minutes of stretching and a set of decline push-ups. Journaling and meditation take up the rest of the 80 minutes and help me get prepped for the next 10 hours. And it's at that point I think, man, he is way too amped up about his morning routine, isn't he? I ran across kind of a counter-cultural movement for people like that. And uh, there were eight habits of not very successful people that a lady had put in an article. A couple of those that really captured my fancy, and I thought, this is probably what most of us relate to. Uh, She made a comment about determining to hit the snooze button no more than three times in the morning, and limiting the number of donuts uh, to four. (laughs) And then she even made reference to, and and I I make a plan for exercise that begins tomorrow, and went on from there. And I thought, you know, mornings are an interesting experience and season for all of us. And regardless of whether you're a morning person or not, there are no doubt habits that you have established A man I learned a lot from through my college days as I worked at a wilderness camp in the summers, a Christian group working with troubled teens. Uh, The director of that camp had a deep impact on my life. And I remember him saying to the teens that we were working with at that time, but it really stuck in my soul too, a boy becomes a man when he does what he likes least first. 
And you can imagine working with troubled teenage boys, many of them had never cultivated habits of life that included things like personal discipline or honesty and trustworthiness, dependability. And we worked through a number of character qualities out of the Scriptures, but that little phrase never left me. And I heard in those same years another man that I respected just impressing upon us the importance of putting first things first. That's a phrase that's commonly used, isn't it? And all of that has to do with the things that are true priorities for us. Commitments that we make at the soul level, deep in our hearts, whether it be a commitment that you make to yourself or a commitment that you make for the sake of your family or even in a setting like this for the sake of your faith. I wonder what the things are that you put first. And if I were to say, what are the five most important things to you, whether it's a part of your morning routine or not, but every day you typically are thinking about or devoting yourself to this, giving time, attention, energy, but what are the five most important things for you? I wonder what your list would include. It might include things like your great appetite for social media or a news feed, or perhaps it would be exercise or diet, or maybe you are addicted to coffee first thing in the morning. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's people. But you know, the things that we give ourselves to day in and day out whether we actually tell people these are my priorities uh, or we've written them down, the thing that you spend your valuable time doing says a lot about what's in your heart and what's truly important to you. Let's open our Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, because the next five verses, as we continue our study through Mark's Gospel, are actually going to show us two very important priorities to Jesus. As a matter of fact, I think we can say these, these are definitely his top two uh, because his life is going to be devoted to both of these things. Now, the Gospel of Mark is a study that we've begun just a few weeks ago, and if you're using one of the, the Bibles provided for you in the book rack in front of you, you'll find this portion of uh, New Testament Scripture on page 836, and I would encourage you to follow along. Uh, so whether you bought, brought your own copy of the Scriptures or, or you want to use the one provided by Gospel Hope, uh, it matters not to me. Just have a, a copy of the Bible open in front of you. So we've made our way all the way to verse 35. And Jesus has begun His ministry, and He has begun it, as verse 15 has told us, announcing a message concerning the kingdom of God, calling people to repent and believe. Last week we spent time working through uh, the teaching ministry of Jesus in a synagogue at Capernaum on the Sabbath. That's the day that the Jewish people worshipped. And as He was teaching, and people were amazed at the authority that He brought to bear in His teaching, and a man with an unclean spirit, a demon speaks out in the middle of this and actually says, Jesus of Nazareth, what have you to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit and, and casts him out of the man, and the people are amazed by the authority that Jesus brings to bear. Well, his day wasn't done 
because he leaves that setting, goes to Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever. He raises her by the hand. She's healed immediately and completely, begins to serve. And at sundown, the word had spread about his teaching, about delivering this, this man from the unclean spirit. And people are lined up at the door, so much so that, that Mark says the whole town was at the front door. That's probably, uh, it, he's not speaking literally because we believe Capernaum was a town of about 10,000 people at that point. But it turned into a really, really long day. And so in verse 34, you read very simply that he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So now follow along as I read just verses 35 to 39. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, that is Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Let's pray for a moment. Almighty God, as we open your holy word this morning, it's with anticipation and eagerness that you, by your spirit, will speak to us. Lord Jesus, your life was lived in such power, such humility, such love. And Mark, in his gospel, has captured some of the significant moments, some of the significant words and messages that you preached and taught, some of the significant miracles that you performed. And it's all with a view that we might believe that you are the living God come into the world to save sinners like us. I know that there are some here today who are not fully persuaded that you are who you reveal yourself to be in the Word. Would you speak to them and draw them? In the same way that you've drawn so many of us to yourself, you've done it powerfully, you've done it compassionately, you've done it graciously and tenderly. Would you do that today? Others who have walked with you and put their faith in you are just struggling and they're in need of comfort and encouragement today. Some are in need of, of clarity because life has become confusing and there are decisions in front of them, situations that they're in the midst of that are overwhelming. And so I ask that you would bring clarity to their minds, that you would bring peace to their souls, that they would recognize you are the great king over all, king of their circumstances, king even of this confusion. King who lives to bring blessing and help and hope. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would accomplish your great work in us so that we might be changed from what we are into what we long to be and even beyond that to what you long for us to be. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. Here's the first priority. I think it becomes 
really simple and obvious, Jesus prays. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. Jesus is God. Yes, he's God who's come in flesh, but God prays. There's no way to know what time Jesus and the disciples had finally gone to bed the night before, but as I alluded to just a moment ago, Mark stated that the whole city was gathered together at the door. He healed many who were sick, and and Mark says he cast out many demons. I'm sure that took a number of hours. So the Sabbath was a long day, and I'm sure that he was very weary probably could have used a little extra rest, much like we do at the end of a long week where Saturday morning comes and we say, I can sleep in a little bit. At least in theory, we try to do that. Some of you had more to do yesterday than it allowed for a break, but you know, Jesus does something here that is a little unusual. I was curious to know what time the sun rises in Israel, and there's reason, I won't go into all the details, but there's reason to believe that these particular events took place in the fall of the year, so month of October, maybe early November, and that means in Israel's schedule, the sunrise would have occurred sometime between 6 and 6.30, so it's likely that he was up well before 6 a.m. What causes him to rise and seek this desolate place and pray? The scriptures don't spell it out for us, but there's some compelling motivation for him to pray rather than to sleep. And I think a little clue is offered to us when Mark says he found a desolate place. That's a term that's translated in other places to refer to a wilderness area, a place that would be barren, not the kind of place you would choose to go on vacation. I'm not sure that the point is so much that it's a wilderness place as it is a place without other things a place to be alone with God, his Father, to pray. One commentator who's been a great help to me notes that Jesus uh, is seeking a place of restoration and fellowship with God. And Mark says very simply, he prayed. And that's a term that means to speak to God. Edwards goes on to write, Amid a whirlwind of activity, Jesus seeks a still point in prayer with the Father. There is a suggestive parallel in wording between Jesus going out to pray and his going out to preach and expel demons in verse 39. The work of the Son of God is both an inward work and an outward work. Jesus cannot extend himself outward in compassion without first attending to the source of his mission and purpose with the Father. And conversely, his oneness with the Father compels him outward in mission. The significance of Jesus' ministry consists not simply in what he does for humanity, but equally in who he is in relation to the Father. Jesus is, according to Mark's narrative, neither contemplative a contemplative ascetic, nor social activist. He does not promote an agenda, but derives a ministry from a relationship with the Father. He is the Son, one in being with the Father, and the servant, one in purpose with His will. And again, I want to be careful because Mark doesn't spell out here the three reasons that Jesus went out, but knowing what prayer is, and we're going to go to a passage that 
uh, Jesus would give later in his ministry teaching his disciples to pray, I think we're very safe in making some assumptions that this was a time of intimate communion with God. And he's making it his priority. Does your life demonstrate a similar priority of communion with God? It may be early in the morning. That may be part of the reason you like to rise before the rest of the household is up or before your workday starts and you have to be in the office or in the classroom or on the assembly line or in the seat of the truck. You like to have that time to, to just commune with God. Maybe it's a special chair in your den. Could be a spot in a local park or maybe up in one of the canyons when time per, or the, the weather permits and time. Where do you go to be alone with God? Many of us have not yet grasped the vital importance of cultivating and investing in a relationship with God, a personal relationship that goes beyond attending a worship service like this, as important as this is. Remember, the day before, Jesus had been in the synagogue, typical Jewish worship practice. But the very next morning, he's in a desolate place. Many of us are a flurry of activity, often good and necessary activity, but of little intentional time with God. In the morning, we grab a bite of scripture on our way out the door, much like we grab a granola bar or put our beverage of choice in a to-go cup. And not unlike the way we chomp and slurp down those granola bars and cups of coffee while we're stopped at a traffic light, lest we spill it on ourselves, we try to cram in a Bible verse, a devotional reading. And may I say with Genuine love in my heart, God knows, listening to K-love is not a substitute for your time with God. It's not. God wants to speak to you and wants you to speak to Him. And if other relationships around you were given the kind of time and attention that you're actually giving to God right now, you'd have far fewer friends. You would not have close family. And if we would make it a priority as Jesus did and is, is showing us something by example, we might be amazed at where our souls would begin to grow or God's peace would begin to govern what is stirred up and frenzied and harried. There's no indication here of how long Jesus spent in prayer, and there's no indication in the scriptures that God has a certain time where he says, you know, a, a passing grade to get a C in your Christian life requires 15 minutes, and the, the B Christians, you know, they'll put in 20 to 25, and the A Christians, well, they do at least a good half hour. He, he doesn't do it like that. And I think in part because God knows in our souls we're a bunch of legalists. We, we'd like, you know, start the stopwatch and be counting the seconds down and go, boom, I got in the A minus category today. Doesn't God like me? And God's not interested in checklists and grades for Christian performance. He wants you. 
And like our Lord Jesus, the significance of life is not simply in what we do, even things we do for God and others, but our significance is first rooted in our relationship to Him. How do you think Jesus prayed? Well, turn back to Matthew 6. I think there's some really important things here. In, in Matthew's gospel, and you're in Mark, so just go back a few pages uh, to Matthew 6. And in, again, the Bibles that many of us use, the ones that are in the book rack in front of you, this is page 811. 811. And it is up on the screen, so you can read it in one of two different places. Jesus gives a lesson to his followers in prayer, and he says in verse 5, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Now, again, many of you weren't here last week. We took just a moment uh, as, as Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, he was doing something very different from the scribes. He, for starters, uh, he was teaching with authority. Mark makes that point. And Mark even says, and not as the scribes. That's because the scribes had, had left the right understanding, interpretation, teaching of Scripture long behind and were now teaching traditions that their crew had thought up. It was just all about the traditions that had been passed down, passed down, passed down. It was no longer about God's living word. And there are other passages where Jesus confronts them directly and calls them hypocrites. So I, I think there's an echo of that right here in front of us. So we've, we've dealt with some of the hypocrites already. We'll deal with them more in Mark's gospel. But now he says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners and they, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, now here's the contrast. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Well, I think there's a little ex explanation of why Jesus would seek an alone place. Because he's praying to the God who still at that point uh, ha had not revealed himself and has not. God's a spirit. No man has seen God at any time, the Lord says, but, but Jesus enters that alone place in a, in a similar fashion. Now, let's read on, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Isn't that marvelous? Two thoughts emerge in those first eight verse, or those first four verses that we've just read, verses five, six, seven, and eight. First of all, God sees you. And then number two, God knows. It's not even just that God hears your prayer. God already knows what you're gonna bring to him. And he's eagerly waiting, expecting. Dare I say it this way, hoping? When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases. What God wants is just honest, personal conversation. I love to hear little children and new believers pray. You know, those of us who've been followers of Jesus for a long time, we, we kind of develop this prayer jargon, if you know what I'm saying. Little kids don't have that yet. And with all sincerity, uh, and often, you know, with eyes firmly closed, you hear things like, Jesus, you're awesome. And we say amen to that. Those prayers are often, I think, probably the purest expression that the Lord Jesus is after right here. 
It's not about many words. It's not even about the most spiritual, theological sounding words. We don't use repetition going over and over saying the same words. You know, because after you say them 12 times, God hears them. But 11, maybe not enough. Jesus is just doing away with all of that. Now look at, look at the real substance of, of what he says next. Pray then like this. Because your father sees and because your father knows. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. All of that to a father. Because your father sees and your father knows, you pray like this. You pray for his glory. That's what the phrase, let your name be hallowed, is all about. Oh, God, let your name be great in the world. Let your name be great in the South Valley. Let your name be great in my neighborhood of Riverton or Draper or Sandy or South Jordan or Harriman. Let your name be hallowed. And then we're praying for his dominion. Let your kingdom come. That's, it's not just a future view when God will establish the eternal kingdom and Jesus will be seated on a throne and that kingdom will not come to an end. But even now we're praying that his dominion would be established. I need his dominion in my heart because there are moments and sometimes even days where I live like a rebel. I'm not submitted to the king, but he's teaching me to pray in this way. Kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my will, not the will of a political party or a leader or some influential personality, your will. And then look at, we're praying for grace because we're dependent on him even for our daily bread. And we're praying for mercy because we have sinned and we need his forgiveness. We need to be people of mercy because other people sin against us every day and we need to extend to them the kind of mercy that we've found in God. And then we're praying for protection and prayer or protection and power. Uh, God knows that temptation is everywhere and the evil one would love to destroy. That's the framework for prayer. The only thing in that prayer that I don't think Jesus ever prayed uh, was forgive my debts because he never sinned. Everything else, though, I can't help but believe that he prayed in some way, some form, maybe not all at the same time, and maybe on this particular morning, as Mark 1 is telling us, as he rose early, well before dawn, he was praying in a similar way. So it's communion with the Father. There's a second thought. Go back to Mark 1 with me. And, and I actually, because this is going to come later, I'm just going to mention it now. Uh, but in light of the ministry of preaching and deliverance, and because of what we will read in Mark 9, verse 29, when some of his disciples were trying to cast out a demon and they couldn't do it, and Jesus said in Mark 9, 29, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. I also suspect it's reasonable that part of his prayer early in the morning was for power in ministry, and, and that 
purity in his preaching and teaching and even delivering ministry that, that might result in the deliverance of many more people. And it comes at the end of the text. I'm just mentioning it now. We'll save that for later and come to that in time uh, as we uh, preach and, and teach and work our way through Mark's gospel. Intimate fellowship, communion with God, is clearly the priority of our Lord Jesus Christ. His desire, even as a man, perfect man, to be empowered by the Spirit for the ministry that awaited him, compelled him to be in prayer. So real simply, I think most of us just actually need to make a plan uh, to, to prioritize prayer and then work it. I don't think there's anything commanded of us that we all should be up well before dawn to pray, although I think that's a great time. Um, and I, I'm, I'm looking around at a lot of uh, families who have young kids, and you're like, man, sleep is so valuable. I, I know, I know. The hard part is when your kids start sleeping through the night, and, and they really are independent enough where they're not up and down and in bed with you during the night, then you're so old you don't sleep well anymore. <laughs> so you just need to get used to being tired and realize there are some things that are more significant than sleep. Sorry. I have a gift of mercy, can you tell? That's the most encouraging word this morning. Set a time each day that works best for you, and that may be morning, that may be night, maybe middle of the day. Maybe you could take 30 minutes of your hour lunch break if you get that much time and just say, I'm, I'm going to find my alone place and I'm going to pray. And then second, pray with your Bible open. You could open it to Matthew 6. That's a, that would be a great starting point. Jesus said, pray in this way and just start praying through his beautiful prayer. The Psalms are another place. That is a prayer book. And some of them are just all praise. Some of them are petitions. Some of them are just pouring out the heart and suffering. God, why do the wicked prosper and I serve you and, and I get this crummy life? What's up with that? That's my very loose paraphrase. Pray with your Bible open. There are some tools that I'd be happy to recommend and have in um, weeks and months gone by that will help develop your prayer life. Um, and, and, here's, and I'm all for prayer tools. So that'd be number three. Set a time. Uh, open your Bible and pray. Uh, find tools that will help you to pray. And then number four, I, I've found this immensely helpful. I don't do it every day, but I would encourage you to journal your prayers. Write them out, type them out. Two things happen. One, it helps you actually articulate uh, what's really in your soul. It also begins to provide a bit of a prayer uh, record. And I had a really neat experience just this week that kind of verifies this for me, that I had written out a prayer two years ago, totally forgotten about that, but I captured some of it, uh, and, and wrote it out, and I came back to the passage of Scripture that had prompted me to pray those things and, and pour out my heart to God a couple of years ago. And I had a little note in the, in the margin there uh, in the Scripture next to it, and I read through that prayer, and it gave me an opportunity to reflect on how kind and good God was in answering some of the most significant needs of my soul at the moment. So two years later, I'm in the same passage reading it, but not using it so much as a prayer of God help me, rescue me, save me at this moment, but now it's a prayer of praise saying, Lord, you did all of that for me, uh, not just on that particular day, but after that. So your journal can become a very pow powerful way to remind yourself of how God is at work, how he does hear your prayers, how he does move into your world with answers that you could never give yourself. 
the priority of prayer. Well, there's a second priority that emerges here. There we go. Jesus preaches. Look at verse 36. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Well, I'm sure they were. I suspect that of the hundreds and hundreds who gathered the night before and were healed of various diseases and others who were delivered of unclean spirits and demons, uh, they continued to spread the word. There's a miracle worker down at Peter's house. I suspect that Peter and his family were awakened earlier on that morning than they might have wanted to get up. Where's Jesus? I got my sick friend out here. There's that other demon-possessed guy. Where's Jesus? There were probably others who were just, they weren't there because they needed to be healed or delivered. They just were like, man, I'm going to see what's going on. Jesus does something really interesting at this point, though, doesn't he? He actually says no to the crowds that were gathering. And he says no to everyone who's looking for him. They're seeking him because his agenda and the Father's agenda for him does not include becoming a sideshow, a spectacle. There's important work for him to do, and he will not allow his ministry to be turned into a circus. He had not come to amuse or amaze crowds of people. He had come to do kingdom work. Look at verse 38. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. He says no to the crowds that are gathering because he must say yes to the mission. This is an important point for all of us to learn. And some of us are not really good yet at saying no to certain things in order to say yes to the most important things. It kills you. And anytime you have to tell somebody no, you feel like, oh, I'm going to disappointment, di- disappoint them. They're not going to like me. And it's really important that people like me and affirm me. Oh, and, and, and you're going to sacrifice the opportunity to participate with God in his great yes priority for you because you won't say no to lesser stuff. You won't say no to social media. You won't say no to the television. You won't say no uh, to somebody who... who actually may have a good idea, but you're like, that's not the thing that God has called me to. And Jesus, and I think this is tied to prayer, it's crystal clear to him what the next move is. He's not driven by needs, some of them even significant. And let's face it, he has the perfect heart of mercy and compassion. I don't think it was easy for him to walk away from healing ministry in Capernaum knowing there were people still there who were suffering the results of sin as it had entered the world. But at that moment, that's not what he needed to devote his time and energy to. He needed to move on to the other towns because there were people there who were in the bondage and slavery of sin and needed to hear the message of the kingdom. Repent and believe. The time is at hand. The kingdom is here. So Jesus' sense of mission, as one author writes, compels him to leave an apparently fruitful and popular ministry in order to extend his proclamation of the kingdom of God through the rest of Galilee. The next towns. 
And those towns would have been smaller than Capernaum, by the way. It'd be like having a significant ministry developing right here. We're part of Salt Lake. Huge population, huge resources, huge everything. God gives you a burden for a little place like Farron. We have friends who live in Farron. Met them recently. Any of you been to Farron? Know where it is? Not a booming metropolis of a town, is it? It'd be like Jesus saying, you know, to us, and let's, let's say we had been with them all day yesterday and watched this amazing thing, and hundreds and maybe even thousands of people had, had just swarmed around, and we're really excited saying, man, Jesus has got unbelievable things and opportunities here in Salt Lake City, and he's like, you know what? We actually need to hit the road and get down to Farron that I may preach. <coughs> now, that word preach is used all throughout the New Testament, and, and what's challenging in the work of translation is to find a term in your target language, in our case, that's English, that, that really captures what the original author and language w- would have been conveying. And actually, there are scores. I don't think that's an exaggeration. Maybe a score plus a few, because a score is 20. There are dozens of terms that convey this kind of open communication, and, and we will translate in English many of those terms with the word preach. Now, here's what I want to do. I actually want to adjust your thinking at this moment. Preaching has come to mean a certain thing in our context. I'm doing it right now, and, and so it's going to be easy for everybody to understand this. Even if you've never been to church before, you're saying, this is the first time I've heard a preacher preach like you were doing. Yeah, well, this is just kind of... Uh, uh, it's not just unique to you know, Western civilization, but it, it was a little different in that day and age. We come in, and typically one person has prepared uh, a message, and it's almost always in outline form, and we're even taught there are certain ways to communicate, and you, know, you need to illustrate it, and you need to make application, all these things. And then we arrange ourselves in tidy little rows, and we all face forward, Right? And we have a certain amount of time, and some of you are already restless, like, you know, he's gone a good half hour plus. Is he wrapping it up? Uh, soon, but not, not soon enough. Um, so you have an idea about preaching, like this is it. What Mark actually communicates in his letter, though, is more along the lines of a public proclamation. We have the Internet now. Uh, we have newscasts. We have ways of getting our news very different from that day and age. And, and rulers and kings would actually send out their official messengers and they would herald a message in the streets. And their job would be to move, giving that report, move from place to place, just crying out, crying out, heralding, proclaiming. That's the kind of word that... that Mark is using to convey the work that Jesus was doing. His desire, his purpose is to go into communities and proclaim, broadcast, if you will, this message of the kingdom, a message of repentance, a message of faith. He's not setting up meetings where he's going to gather in a, a setting like this, you know, at a particular time and limit it to that, although we will see it in the chapter, he will go into synagogues, but he is going into communities for the purpose of heralding this message, and he says, that is why I came out. Now think about this for a moment. What does it tell you about this message? That God himself, the great king of the universe, 
would not simply delegate messengers to go and proclaim the message, but that he himself would enter the world as a human being and become the great messenger at this moment. That signals something of great importance about this message. It's more than just news of what might be happening you know, in the capital city of Jerusalem. It's more than just, hey, here are a few suggestions I'd like to offer to make your life a little bit better. No, the great king over all is his own messenger, stands on the street corner, positions himself in synagogues, which were the primary place of worship and teaching ministry in these, in these towns and cities, and he heralds his message, announces his kingdom has come, calls people to repent of their sins and to believe in him as the only way of salvation and deliverance from their sins. That gives us some sense of why he would say no to some really good opportunities. How do you walk away from a person who needs to be healed? The only way I can see that being justified is because you say there's actually something more eternally significant than their temporal healing. There are souls that will be lost forever if this message doesn't go out. And so Jesus says no in order to say yes. Verse 39, he went throughout all Galilee preaching or heralding, proclaiming in their synagogues and casting out demons. Oh, the king is on mission and he is turning darkness on its head and he's bringing the powerful gospel into souls that have long been held captive. And do you know his purpose is to overthrow the dead traditionalism characterized by the scribes, that religious system where there was no life and deliverance and Jesus is there to blow it apart. And that demonic realm that had occupied territory of human souls and, and hearts way too long, Jesus is there to say no more. I claim these people. They are not yours. Be gone. He's doing exactly what Isaiah prophesied Messiah would do 750 years earlier. Oh, how I love this prophecy. These are the words of Messiah. This is Jesus in Isaiah 61, verse 1, we read, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are, who are bound. This is a message of hope and life for the spiritually bankrupt ones, the ones who know that they are not righteous enough to enter God's kingdom. This is a message of forgiveness and salvation for those who sorrow and mourn over their sinfulness. This is a message of deliverance and rescue for those who despair that the bondage of their sins, like lust and greed and anger and gossip, will ultimately be their undoing. Even for people who say, I'm too weak inside and too weak outside to rise early in the morning to find a moment of alone time with this God who I believe is out there. Who will help me? Who will rescue me? Jesus comes and says, I am here and I will. The king loves to preach. Do you know what's beautiful to me? It's still the purpose of the king. 
we were reminded from the very outset. It's Megan's testimony. She talked about Jesus rising from the dead. I may be getting those girls confused, so forgive me if I've switched those two. But after Jesus rose from the dead, had another little brief period of time on earth, and then he ascended on high, it's not like the, the preaching and proclamation stopped. No, actually, it's the work he delegated to his disciples. And not just the 11. It's work that he's delegated to all of his followers. And there are passages like Romans 10, 13 through 15 that remind us this work of heralding, of proclaiming, is still God's purpose. And it's our privilege to participate. In Romans 10, verse 13, here's the great promise. This, this is like the, the cornerstone that, that God sets in place that gives other messengers like us great hope. Here's the promise. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. And, and there are no other uh, prerequisites or, or qualifications that have to be hung on that. Just that simple call. Now, listen to the Apostle Paul's reasoning. So if that's the promise, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Second question, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Question three, and how are they to hear without someone preaching, heralding, proclaiming? And question four, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? Those are four important questions for all of us to wrestle with. I think there's broad application and specific application, and this is where I am going to bring it to a conclusion. So tell the nursery workers to hang on. There's hope. A scripture like this, first of all, shapes our vision personally, individually. You, you need to read that text and say, where do I fit into that? And you know, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a messenger. Some of you will have an opportunity to do it in a more formal sense and setting like this. God is calling, has called some of you to actually be preachers in the sense that we use that term and this concept uh, here at this time in this setting. But what about the rest of you? Well, we're all messengers. And so your proclamation, that work you do as a herald in your neighborhood, across the fence, or standing in the driveway, the holidays are coming up and, and some of you are already planning, I'm going to have a little Christmas cookie fellowship at my house and we're going to prepare a little, maybe a little gospel track to give our neighbors or just give a testimony. That's it. You're, you're heralding. Some of you do it on the work, uh, on the work, in the workplace, on the job. And sometimes your conversations get about that far. You were thinking you'd go, you know, the whole distance. Tell them Genesis to Revelation. And all you got out was, I believe that God created me. And then it got shut down. But you know what? You, you opened your mouth, and from your heart you were speaking the great message. And next time, God will shove it a little farther, give you a little bigger opportunity. You're heralding. So that's like the personal uh, point number one that's of a very personal nature and a question related to that do you see yourself in that way if you're a follower of Jesus 
you have to. It's not a separate identity. This is a big work, and God wants all of us to be his divine, royal messengers. But there's another point of application that ties so beautifully into one of the things, the themes that we've been developing here as a church, as Gospel Hope Church. We want to be, we've used this phrase, I'm going to repeat it again, we want to be a healthy church that reproduces healthy churches. So what does church health look like? Well, part of it includes what we're doing today. We worship God together. We serve together. We fellowship in the biblical sense that as we build tight relationships with one another where we can pray for one another, confess our sins to one another, where we can comfort and encourage and exhort and admonish. We, we want to become that. But it takes work, and we're not doing it perfectly by a long shot. But we want to be a healthy church that functions in that way that's reproducing others. And that's where Paul asks a very powerful question. And, and we must answer this question as a church. How are they to preach unless they are sent? And so churches like ours need to plan for, pray for, work toward those moments where we actually look around and we say, you know what, you and 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 you, um, we're going to send you out. Because this community we've identified, maybe it'll be Harriman or Saratoga Springs. I mean, those are a couple places nearby. We say, you know what? They need a gospel witness. How will they call on him of whom they've never heard? And it can be really confusing in this valley, can't it? Because there's a lot of the same religious terminology. Even some of the same names are used, sung, prayed to, read about. But I'm telling you, there are at least two different Jesuses that you'll hear about in this valley. And the Jesus we're speaking of here this morning is not the spirit brother of Satan. He did not become God at some point. He always was. It's a different Jesus. How are they going to call on the true Jesus if they never heard about him? How will they hear, jumping all the way end, uh, to the end, unless someone is sent? So you got to pray about this. I know this sounds crazy because we're, we're in this new stage of revitalization and we're excited to see God growing people and saving people and changing people and all that he's doing, but we, we can't be thinking, hey, praise God for what's happening on 27th West on our little piece of property and we're just gonna grow it and build it and uh, defend it and deepen it. We pray God will grow it, but with a view that we would send and send and send and send. Priorities of prayer and preaching. Will you bow your heads with me, please? Are you listening to Jesus? He's still proclaiming his message of life, of salvation, of forgiveness of sins to our generation. He's just not here to do it personally, but he does it through his followers. Have you responded in faith to his call? If you've never responded in faith, confessing your sins to God and saying to him, please forgive me, 
and give me eternal life. Would you do that today? Would you do that right now? You can do that right in your seat with God, you speaking from your soul to him. The words don't even have to be audible to the rest of us in this room, but you know when they come sincerely from your soul and you, you are speaking to the God of the Bible. You may say, I have questions still. Could I talk to you? Could I talk to someone? Yes, by all means. You who are followers of Jesus, what do the functional priorities of your life really say about what you value? Are you in the regular habit of finding your alone place and communing with God? Do you open his word and listen to him speak daily? Do you pray to him for more than just a few seconds or maybe at a meal? Is that kind of prayer a priority to you? And you say, oh, it's not. I feel like such a failure. I know. Join the club. Most of us do feel like failures in this respect. But you know what? This is a new day. And God is the God of fresh starts. So don't waste time mourning the past. You may need to confess some of your negligence and laziness to God. But after you've confessed it, then just say, Lord God, by your grace, I'm going to start having that alone time with you daily. And for some of you, it would be huge if that time was five minutes long, where it's just you and there's no social media active, no radio on, just you, Bible open, and God. And you read a little and you pray a little, and, and it takes you five minutes and you feel like it's about 50. That'd be a great step. Take it. Take the first step. And then the third point, we've got a great message to proclaim and there are people who need to hear. Can we devote ourselves to it personally and can we devote ourselves afresh to it as a church? God, would you take your word, the living word of Mark's gospel and seal it to our hearts. Move us, inspire us, encourage us, motivate us. Please, just don't leave us as we are. Keep your good work rolling in our souls until we are holy and completely in the image of Jesus. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.